Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, and open it to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We know that um, when Jesus began his ministry, he began to proclaim the gospel of God. That was how he started. That was how he began. He was proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark chapter 1, verse four, verses 14 and 15 say that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He came proclaiming the good news of God and saying, and here's that message of good news, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we could say a lot about those verses, but the point I want to make here, the connection I want to make, is that the announcement about the kingdom of God being at hand is an important part of the gospel of God. In other words, the gospel, the good news, includes on at least some level the announcement that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is at hand. Now, there's a lot of questions that we could ask about the kingdom of God. What exactly is it? What is it like? What does it mean when Jesus says in Mark 1.15 that the kingdom of God is at hand? How is the kingdom's arrival good news? Why is that announcement good news? How will people know that the kingdom of God has indeed arrived? And how are people to respond to it? These questions keep coming up in Jesus' ministry. He teaches on them. He answers them over and over again. And we see that he answers them again in this passage that we're going to look at today, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, as we conclude the 17th chapter of Luke. At the heart of today's passage is this tension that Christians have noticed and have wrestled with about the kingdom of God, particularly the fact that the idea of the timing of the kingdom, the fact that it is in one sense already, but in another sense, not yet. So as we study this passage today, Luke 17, verses 20 to 37, we want to understand the already and the not yet dimensions of the kingdom of God and how those dimensions affect the way that we live right now and how it fuels our hope for the future. There is a sense in which we are living in this kingdom right now. How do we live right now in the kingdom of God? And yet we also know at the same time that there are elements that are still unfulfilled, uncompleted. There's still a hope that we have for the kingdom to come in its fullness, and its consummation. How should we hope for that? How should that hope drive us and, and fuel us as we live even today? So let's look at the passage, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. 
They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Should make for an interesting study today. Will it not? I don't know that I have all the answers either. I'll do the best I can. Try to make sense of what is here. We can outline this passage, I think, easily into two parts. The first part, verses 20 and 21, where we see that the kingdom of God is a present reality in which we are currently living. And the second part comes in verses 22 to 37, where we see the kingdom of God is a future hope that we are to watch for and prepare for. So let's consider each of those in turn. First, the present kingdom. The first two verses here, verses 20 and 21, the main point of these verses is that the kingdom of God has already arrived. It is a present reality. God has made the arrival of the kingdom plain to see for all who have ears to hear and eyes to see. We are to note the kingdom's arrival and we are to respond to it by entering into it by faith. Now, in verse 20, we see that Jesus' teaching about the kingdom comes after a question from the Pharisees. Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. So Jesus here is responding to a question by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were quite eager and expectant for the kingdom of God, as many of the Jews were during this time, the first century. Like many Jews, the Pharisees expected that God would raise up a descendant of David, one whom they called the Messiah, the King. And that son of David, that Messiah, would break the yoke of Roman oppression. He would restore an independent, theocratic kingdom, much like David's reign in the Old Testament. That's the parallel. That's the, that's the ideal. That's what the Messiah would aspire to, to bring back the glory days of Israel through the reign that, that existed in the reign of David through one of David's sons. Accompanying Messiah's political and and military movements on the ground would be signs, geological and cosmic phenomena that would both show that the Messiah, that this was indeed God's Messiah, but it would also assist him in his efforts to secure victory. This would be military in many ways, but God was on Messiah's side and he would use heaven and earth to bring destruction to the Romans. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus about when the kingdom of God would come, They were probably asking about supernatural signs, signs on the ground, like perhaps earthquakes, or signs in the heavens, like weather patterns, or or clouds, or lightning and thunder, storms, right? They were asking about what these supernatural signs were that they should look for to indicate the kingdom's arrival that would accompany the Messiah when he came. In fact, the word there, or the phrase in verse 20, that says, 
uh, in ways that can be observed. That's, a, that's one word in the Greek. It's very hard to translate, but in, in secular Greek, it often is found in medical context to indicate the symptoms of disease or the signs of disease. You know a person has a certain disease by the signs or by the symptoms that they give off. And so they're expecting some, some extraordinary signs, some extraordinary evidences or, or phenomena even in the, on the ground and in the heavens that would indicate that the kingdom of God was either on its way or had indeed arrived. They're looking for things like earthquakes, looking for things like violent storms, perhaps even supernatural signs like the arrival of angels that would signal the kingdom's arrival. But Jesus responds that these supernatural phenomena will not accompany the arrival of the kingdom. He says the kingdom will not be observed in this way in verse 20. In fact, he says that people will at that time point to certain signs and say, look, here it is, or, or look, there it is. And Jesus says that when those people say those things, not to believe them. Those signs will not accompany the arrival of the kingdom. Now, why is that the case? Because Jesus says in verse 21 that the kingdom of God has already arrived. Did you see that in verse 21? He says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's among you. It's right in your very presence. It's right before your eyes. In other words, the kingdom of God has already come. It is already here. It is present in the here and now. Well, how can Jesus say that? How can Jesus say that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? Well, the reason he can say that is because he is in the midst of them. The kingdom of God is in the midst of them. It is in the very presence of them. It is right before their eyes because Jesus, as the king of the kingdom, has arrived. The king has come and the king is establishing his kingdom. The proof that Jesus is the Messiah who is setting up God's kingdom is observed in the signs that the Pharisees have failed to see. Yes, there are signs that the Pharisees have looked for the wrong signs. They've been looking for wonders on earth or in the heavens. But they have failed to see the supernatural works of God right in their very midst. Consider the context of this passage if you were here last Sunday. Back in verses 11 to 19, what did Jesus do? He healed ten lepers. There were ten men who had leprosy. They were diseased. They were afflicted by this skin condition that wouldn't go away. They cried out to Jesus in a loud voice, Lord, have mercy upon us. Son of David, have mercy upon us. Do something to help us. And Jesus, in that moment, healed them of their disease. Immediately cured them. And in that sign, Jesus was showing his messianic character, his messianic identity. He was the king whom God was sending to break the power of sin and death and Satan over humanity. Jesus was working out God's mission of restoring and redeeming lost people and making them completely new and whole in every way. And what's remarkable about this is not just simply that passage, but all throughout the Gospels. The Pharisees had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. They had a front row seat to the kingdom's arrival. And yet every time Jesus does these supernatural works, what do they do? They make excuses, right? They called him a blasphemer. They said he did these miracles by the power of Satan. They dismissed his work. And yet it was plain for all to see. It was plain for them to see. The kingdom of God was in the very midst of them, but they refused to see it. Now, friends, it is right and it is good and it is true to say that we are presently living in the kingdom of God because Jesus has arrived. The king has come. He is 
he has set up his kingdom. He is continuing to set up his kingdom. He is establishing it. Since the very beginning of his ministry on earth, Jesus has been crushing the curse of sin and death that reigns over his people. He has been breaking Satan's power and bondage over his people. He has saved us from sin and death. He saved us from the wrath of God that our sins deserve. He has redeemed us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He has brought us out of darkness and into the light. He's taken spiritually dead people and made them alive. He has cleansed us of all unrighteousness and he is conforming us to his own image. All of this is evidence of the kingdom of God. This is the work of God in our midst through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that we have experienced. If you're trusting in Jesus, the Messiah, you have salvation. The curse of sin and death has been broken over you. The curse of Satan's power has been broken in your life. These things are real because they have happened to us in the present. They are ongoing even now. As new people are saved, it is the work of Jesus who is doing this work, which is his kingdom's work. In fact, even as we sit here this morning, we have a picture. Look around. We have a picture of the kingdom's present reality. We have come in this morning, people saved by the grace of Jesus. We have experienced the forgiveness of sins. We have been transformed to new life. And we have gathered ourselves to submit ourselves to King Jesus. What are you doing when you worship? You are submitting yourself to the authority of King Jesus. You are saying, Lord, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of adoration. You are worthy of praise. We are giving that to Jesus and to no one else. That is a picture of the kingdom of God. We are sitting here together under his authority. As we gather, Jesus is reigning over us as his people. He is our head. He is our king. We are bowing our knee to him. He is doing his work among us. So as we worship this morning, we, this church, is a visible demonstration that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. These words of Jesus are true. And so if those words are true, if this is true that we are living now in the kingdom of God, then we must live as kingdom people. We must live under the authority of King Jesus. We must obey his commands. We must follow his example. We must embrace his cause. Our lives must reflect his holy rule in us. We are his subjects. We are his followers. We are his ambassadors. We give evidence of his kingdom and his reign to the world. When we leave here this morning, we testify to the kingdom of God. We testify that it is a present thing among us. We are calling people to see the reality of the kingdom, to understand where they are, to understand their own sinfulness, to understand their need of the gospel, and to submit themselves in repentance and faith to Jesus. And in doing so, that is the good news. Because as they do that, as we have done that, they enter in. They experience the grace of God. They experience the glory and the blessedness of His salvation as their sins are washed away and they are made new. So if we claim to be a kingdom people, then we must live as kingdom people because the kingdom of God is in the midst of us. That's the first part of this. The present kingdom, the present reality of the kingdom. But in verses 22 to 37, we see there's also another dimension to this. 
Even though the kingdom has arrived with the ministry of Jesus, the fullness of the kingdom has not yet been realized. Though Jesus began it when he first entered the world, it has not yet been completed. There are promises yet to be fulfilled. The kingdom is already, but not yet. And Jesus explains that dimension to his disciples in verses 22 to 37. If you look at verse 22, notice the shift in the audience, right? In verse 20, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had posed a question to Jesus. They were looking for supernatural signs to indicate the kingdom's arrival. But Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God has already arrived and was in the midst of them. They had missed, they had missed the sign, the pertinent sign, right? They had missed the person of the Messiah right among them, the person of Jesus. But in verse 22, Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. These are his followers. They've been following him now for some length of time. They've, they've heard his teaching. They've witnessed his miracles. They've come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that he, through his ministry, was ushering in God's kingdom. But now Jesus discloses to his disciples the future hope of the kingdom. Though the kingdom is a present reality in which they live, there are still kingdom promises to be fulfilled. There is a future hope. There is a day of consummation coming. There are still elements of kingdom life and kingdom reality that are not yet. And so Jesus discloses what the disciples should look for in terms of the consummation. The word consummation just means to draw to a close, to bring to fulfillment. He gives them certain things to look for in terms of the the consummation of the kingdom so that they will know the fullness when it has come. So what does Jesus say about the consummation of the kingdom of God? There are six aspects here in verses 22 to 37 that I think we need to point out. First, the consummation of the kingdom of God is future. The consummation of the kingdom of God is future. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Notice in verse 22 that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That is an important title. It refers back to a prophecy back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, in the Hebrew language, the phrase son of man is another way of saying a human being or a person. So in Daniel's vision, he sees a person, he sees a human being, he sees an an individual that appears to him like a human being. And yet, this human being or one with the appearance of a human being, was arrayed in supernatural glory. Notice in verse, well, I guess it's up there. If you go back one to verse 13, um, Doug, you see that this figure, the Ancient of Days, is mentioned. That's just another reference to Yahweh, to the, the Old Testament name for God. It's another reference to God. And that with the Son of Man, comes he comes in this the, the clouds of glory, the clouds of heaven, which are an Old Testament way of indicating supernatural glory. So the Ancient of Days, we would maybe assume as as God the Father, Yahweh, gave this Son of Man a kingdom that he would rule over 
forever. It would be a kingdom made up of all peoples, people from every nation. And, and this Son of Man would rule over these nations, over this kingdom forever. Notice also that that dominion, another word for kingdom there, is everlasting. And the kingdom would never be destroyed. This is an eternal kingdom that cannot ever be overthrown. Now, in, back in Luke chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus identifies himself with this Son of Man. He's identifying himself with this prophecy from Daniel. Jesus entered the world as a human being, as a Son of Man, as an individual, as a, as a person. And yet, he was at the same time not just any ordinary man, he was the Son of God. He was arrayed with divine glory. Jesus was given a kingdom by his father. The father gave a kingdom to his son to establish. And over that kingdom, this son of man, Jesus, would rule forever. Now, in Daniel's prophecy, it appears that this happens at the consummation of the age. That Jesus, though he began to establish his kingdom during his earthly ministry, he would not bring it to consummation until the end of the age. Nevertheless, Jesus will consummate his kingdom at the appointed time when God draws history to a close. So there is this future dimension to this kingdom. Now, as part of their acceptance and trust in the gospel, the disciples were eager for the full realization of the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus teaching about the kingdom and talking about it. He's speaking about what salvation means and the fullness of salvation, the blessings and the the full reality of what that means. And I'm I'm sure even as Christians today, we're kind of eager for that day. We're eager for for all this mess and all this chaos to go away. and We can live in the fullness of the promises of God. They were eager for it as well. But Jesus says that even though they desire to see the day of consummation, they would not see it. Verse 22. In other words, though they have entered into the kingdom of God by faith, And though they live and minister in the kingdom of God as they continue the ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts, they, the disciples, they themselves will not see the full manifestation of the kingdom of God during their lifetime. The consummation of the kingdom would still be a future reality. Jesus also warns them not to be tempted to follow others who proclaim the fulfillment of that the kingdom has come. You notice that in verse 23? And they will say to you, other people are going to say to you, look, here it is over here, or or there it is over there. He says, don't give in to your desire. Don't be deceived by your desire. Because you're excited for the kingdom, because you're anticipating the kingdom, don't allow yourself to be tempted and go and run after other false messiahs, others who are claiming that the consummation has come. Their desire should not overtake them. It should not lead them astray. It should not allow them to be deceived. Instead, they must... Remember the words of Jesus. They must put their hands to the plow. They must be obedient to the word and will of Jesus. The kingdom will be consummated at the right time, but it will be future. And though they should desire that day, they should not be led astray by that desire. And I think this is a good reminder for us as well. Because we live in the kingdom presently. And yet, how many of us feel the weight of the desire for that day to come? We should be longing for that day of consummation. We should be longing for the full reality of the promises of God given to us in Jesus for that day of consummation, for the full reality of the kingdom. But while we wait and while we desire that day, 
We must not be overcome by temptation or deception. We must continue to walk in full submission to King Jesus and obey all that he has given us to do until that day comes and all that is promised will be fulfilled. The consummation of the kingdom is future. Secondly, the consummation of the kingdom will be recognizable to all. Verse 24 says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So the Pharisees were looking for these meteorological, cosmic signs, but they were looking for the wrong signs at the wrong time. Here Jesus says that some of those signs that the Pharisees were expecting would actually be part of the consummation of the age. And yet, the issue for the Pharisees was timing. They were to be looking for the arrival, not the consummation. At the point they're looking for all these meteorological signs, it would be too late. In verse 23, Jesus indicates that some people would try to deceive the disciples by looking in particular places for the signs of the kingdom's consummation. But the example that Jesus gives in verse 24 indicates that the signs would be, would be universal and recognizable. In other words, it wouldn't be over here in this particular place, right? There would be some that would say, hey, look over here. Here's the sign over here. And Jesus says, no, the sign will be as if a lightning bolt flashes from one side of the sky to the other. In other words, it's not localized to one place. It will be universal. It will be recognizable. Think about when you see a lightning flash, right? A lightning flash, you can see from many different places, many different locations. It is obvious. It is observable to all. It is not hidden from view. It's readily seen by all. And Jesus indicates by this analogy that the consummation of the kingdom will not be hidden. When that day comes, it will be visible to everyone. The consummation of the kingdom will be recognizable to all. Third aspect of the kingdom of God, the consummation of the kingdom of God requires the suffering and rejection of the Messiah. Notice in verse 25, he says, but first, as he's speaking about the full consummation of these things, he says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. Jesus says that the Son of Man must die. He must suffer. He must be rejected. In other words, the necessary prerequisite to the kingdom's consummation is the death of Jesus. None of the kingdom promises can be fulfilled unless Jesus dies first. All that Jesus started during his earthly ministry would be really fruitless unless he goes to the cross and dies. Now, this is a little bit ironic because we said back in Daniel chapter 7, that picture of the Son of Man is a glorious picture, right? How do we reconcile this glorious picture of the Son of Man with Jesus who dies on a cross? Right? It seems ironic to us. Because the Son of Man appears in supernatural glory. He is the favored one. The one of, that the Ancient of Days gives to him his, this kingdom. He receives this, this excellent blessing from God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall never pass away. His kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So it seems a little bit ironic to uphold this glorious picture of the Son of Man to say first that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, it sounds that the suffering and rejection and death of the Son of Man is an anomaly. It sounds completely antithetical to what God revealed in the Old Testament in that passage in Daniel chapter 7. And yet, this is how it would happen. This is how it must happen. 
In order to establish a kingdom inhabited by people from all nations, there must be a way for people to enter in, right? Because the sin problem keeps people out. We're sinful people. How can sinful people enter into a perfect, holy, and righteous kingdom? It is a kingdom of righteousness. It is a kingdom of holiness. It is a kingdom of justice. In fact, Paul, I think, references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God is righteousness and holiness and justice and ultimate goodness, how can unholy people, people from every nation, enter into that kingdom? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul speaking here to the Corinthians, he's saying, you guys would be disqualified from entering into the kingdom. This wasn't a Corinthian problem, it was a, is a human problem, right? This applies to us, it applies to every human being. We are all disqualified by our sinfulness to enter into the kingdom of God. And so if Christ is to have a kingdom, if he is to have a kingdom inhabited by people from every nation, tribe, and people and language, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, the Old Testament indicates that a sacrifice would need to be made to redeem sinful people so that they might enter the kingdom of God and dwell with him forever. We see that in the sacrificial system, pointing to this reality. Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah prophesies that the necessary sacrifice could only come from God's suffering servant. You know Isaiah 53, right? Verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it would take. And this is what Jesus says about himself. Mark 10:45, That the triumphant Son of Man is also the suffering servant. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man is not just this glorious figure of awesome power, putting down all sinful peoples. He is one who would come in human flesh. He would go to the cross. He would, be, he would suffer. He would be rejected. He would die. But it would all be to redeem people, to bring them into His kingdom. And so Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, don't you guys know that nobody... No, no, nothing unrighteous. No one unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know this is what you were? None of these people can come in. And then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How is it that we enter into the kingdom of God? It's by the Son of Man's death. His crucifixion. His blood poured out for us. Jesus did what was necessary to establish his kingdom. So, Jesus says the kingdom is still future, but there's an important prerequisite. And that prerequisite is that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected in this generation. 
Number four, the consummation of the kingdom will come unexpectedly. The consummation of the kingdom will come unexpectedly. We see this in verses 26 through 30, where Jesus compares the coming of the days of the Son of Man to the days of Noah and Lot. And think about these in particular just for a few minutes. The days of Noah. What was happening in the days of Noah? Right? What did God do during Noah's time? He brought a cataclysmic judgment against the sinful generation that was living at that time by the great flood. He destroyed the entire human race apart from Noah and apart from his family, whom he graciously saved by bringing them into the ark. But when did that judgment come? It came while people were eating and drinking and were marrying and being given in marriage. They were, they were doing the normal, ordinary activities of life. There was no forewarning when the rain began to fall and the floodwaters began to rise. People were living their life as usual. And as that was going on, Noah and his family entered the ark. God sent the flood and he destroyed all of humanity. The key point there is that God's judgment came unexpectedly. What about the days of Lot? In Lot's day, you remember that God sent the fire and brimstone from heaven to consume the sinful peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah? But when did that judgment come? It came during the ordinary activities of life. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Those were the normal activities that they, they entered into, that they conducted on a regular basis. There was no forewarning. People were living life as usual. God called Lot and his family to depart from the city. And when they did, God sent the fire and brimstone and destroyed that generation. God's judgment came unexpectedly. And Jesus says that the day of the Son of Man, the day when he brings finality to his kingdom work, will be similar. Ordinary people will be going through the ordinary motions of life when the Son of Man returns to enact judgment. He will bring history to a close. He will bring his kingdom to fulfillment. The kingdom's fullness will come unexpectedly. Number five, the consummation of the kingdom demands that people be prepared for it. The consummation of the kingdom demands that people be prepared for it. In verses 31 to 33, we see this, the unexpected nature, the unexpected arrival of the, of the kingdom's consummation demands that people be ready when it comes. If we don't know when the Son of Man will return, then we must be ready and prepared for His arrival at any given moment. The day of the Son of Man will be a day of salvation or a day of judgment depending upon one's preparation. So if we expect the Son of Man to return, if we have heard the gospel and believed the gospel, if we are believing that the kingdom of God is at hand, if we are trusting in Messiah's salvation from judgment and redemption as His people, then we have nothing to fear. The day of the Son of Man will be a delight to us because nothing we have thought nothing of our earthly lives, but instead valued eternal life. You see verse 33. Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. If we think nothing of our life now, and we are concerned for our life still yet future, then we have nothing to worry about when the Son of Man comes. We'll be looking for him. We'll be expecting of his return. We'll be looking forward to that day. We, in fact, we are even willing to lose our lives in the here and now so that we might keep it safely forever in Messiah's care. But if we're seeking to preserve our life now in this world without regard for Messiah's kingdom, then we are sure to lose our lives. In fact, Lot's wife is an excellent example. Verse 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. 
Though God had saved her from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, she loved her life there so much that she turned back to look at it and she longed for it. And in doing so, she lost her life and became a pillar of salt. So we are warned against following her example. Our love and our delight should be for the Son of Man and for His glorious kingdom because there is the fullness and essence of life itself. Number six, last characteristic, last aspect of the future dimension of the kingdom. The consummation of the kingdom of God will bring salvation for some and judgment for others. The consummation of the kingdom will bring salvation for some and judgment for others. The disciples desire to see the days of the Son of Man because they would be the days in which the kingdom was consummated. The arrival of the kingdom of God would mean true, full, and final salvation for them. This was the day that when all that Jesus promised would come to reality, when all that had been promised to them in the gospel would be realized and, and would be fully experienced. Is that not something we should long for ourselves? Are we satisfied with what life is here and now? No, we're looking forward to the fullness, the completion, the full manifestation of what it means to be saved. But the day of salvation for Jesus' disciples would also be a day of judgment for those who rejected Christ and His kingdom. Like the flood in Noah's days, and like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's days, Jesus the Messiah would unleash the full measure of God's wrath and judgment upon the wicked. In fact, we see this contrast between salvation and judgment clearly in verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. It's unclear exactly from this illustration which one is saved and which one is judged. It could be that the one that is taken is saved while the one left behind remains for the Son of Man's judgment. Or it could be that the one taken has experienced death, which would be a, an example or an element, an aspect of God's judgment, while the one remaining lives to have life in the kingdom of God. Either way, no matter which way we look at this, the contrast between salvation and judgment and between life and death is clear and it is strong. There will be some on that day who are saved and there will be some on that day who are lost. That is the reality. It will be a day of salvation for those who are trusting in Christ and it will be a day of judgment for those who have rejected Him. In fact, Jesus concludes this teaching with a popular proverb of the time, verse 37, where he says, Where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. This proverb teaches that the Son of Man will be, that the day of the Son of Man will be a day of judgment for the unbelieving. Vultures gathering around a corpse signal death and destruction. And so also when the Son of Man comes, those opposed to his rule will meet their end in eternal destruction as well. So these are the signs and features and elements of the consummation of the kingdom of God that are still future. And this teaching challenges us to look expectantly for and to, to hope in the consummation of the kingdom. When that day comes, it will be the fulfillment of our salvation. It is the destiny that we have been promised. It is the climax of our experience of Christ and hope in the gospel. And so as believers, we should look forward to that day. The early church, when they ended their prayers, often cried out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. At the same time, if you are here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, if you've rejected Him, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Him, 
you should be warned. You should beware that the days of the Son of Man will be dark and dangerous for you. Even as we long for these days ourselves, we as God's people must also make the most of our time to warn others of the judgment to come and to proclaim the good news of the salvation in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, the gospel, when he says that when he proclaimed the gospel of God, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is good news because if you enter in, there is salvation. And that is what we as God's people need to declare to the world that there is a judgment coming, that there is a day of death and darkness and wrath that will be terrible. But the good news is that if you will trust in Christ, if you'll repent of your sins, if you'll embrace what he offers, you can enter in and be saved and know the fullness of life. Brothers and sisters, let us long for this day. Let our, let our hope be in the victory of Christ and in the promise of his reign. Let us be expectant for the full reward of our salvation. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and rest in the promise that he will bring to fulfillment all that he has intended in our salvation. And while we wait for and long for that day, let us submit ourselves to King Jesus. Let us keep obeying his commands. Let us keep doing his work. Let us keep laboring for his glory. For his kingdom has come and we have entered in and we are tasting the first fruits of the eternal blessings that are still yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that we've been challenged and reminded that this life that we tend to be so caught up in is not the end. That there is a future hope. That there is a day of consummation. That there is the full reward of salvation still yet to come. It's what the early church seemed to long for. That even as they were faithful to live in that day, that their eyes were still to the kingdom still to that day when all of this would be wrapped up and the new heavens and the new earth would come and the day of salvation would be brought in in its full manifestation and glory. Lord, forgive us for being so earthly-minded that we forget about our destiny. I pray that these truths, Lord, about the future dimension of the kingdom would help us and remind us to live with purpose even in the here and now. That we would make the most of the time that we've been given that we would long for the full reality of what we've been promised, and that we would be guided by the, by the authority and the rule of King Jesus. Lord, help us. Help us. Thank you, Lord, for this truth and for this encouraging word today. I pray you'd help us to live according to these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.